we get the third of ultimately what will be four friends, frenemies of Job, uh, that will show up to ostensibly give him comfort, um, but they really offer no comfort at all. Uh, And so the guy we get to deal with this morning is a gentleman by the name of Zophar. Um, And once again, we're going to see how this friend, uh, instead of bringing Christ's healing words or God's healing balm to a suffering man, brings uh, really Satan's words, condemnation and judgment and harshness and uh, grinds salt into the wounds of Job. Um, And before I begin, I just want to pause for a moment um, because lots of what we're going to talk about this morning has to do with a tone-deaf misreading of the situation and the suffering. And I want to remind us right from the beginning that the the very first thing you should do when people are suffering is enter into their suffering and listen and try as best you can to have the presence of God. Um, Former pastor, he and I would go to various meetings and something he prayed that really stood out to me and I've made it my prayer since then on lots of occasions. He would pray it this way, Lord, help us to walk in the shoes of Jesus and to really understand that's what you're on mission to do. And I think it's a really helpful way to think about it. And part of the reason I say that is because when people are suffering, when they're in deep grief, that can be frightening to try to enter into because you don't know what to say and you don't know how to act. And and so sometimes, sometimes we are like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and we say the world's worst things, right? Um, But then other times we are silent and we say nothing. And we can live in a lie that says it's better to say nothing than to mess up and say the wrong thing. And I would actually argue this way. They're just two different poisons. And both of them cause deep harm to the sufferer. And so by the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you two truths that I guarantee you, you can bring into the life of a sufferer. So I'm going to arm you with something. I'm going to, I'm going to put the tools in the toolbox. And what I want to do is I want to rob any, any lie of the devil, right, right, that we have the world, the flesh, and the devil, any lie of the devil or any personal insecurity you or I may feel to equip us to know this is something I can always say. If I'm dealing with a believer who's suffering, here are some things that I can say to them and kindly deal with them. And so having said that then, and so what about Zophar? Oh, Zophar. Uh, he's another one of those guys, if you could go back a couple thousand years, you'd frankly just like to smack him in the mouth, right? He's the kind of guy why the Bible says that pastors are not to be brawlers or strikers of 1 Timothy 3, right? Because this guy says stuff and you're like, you need a swift kick in the rear because you are a moron. And because the things he says, if you thought Eliphaz was bad, you thought Bildad was bad, Zophar shows up and this guy, it's unbelievable what he has to say. And as I was thinking about it, and the reality is, is as I'm studying through Job, right, I don't, I don't arrive at Job having pre-studied all of the book, right? I'm, I'm a little ahead of where we're at, uh, but not weeks or months ahead because I was studying what we were preaching before. And one of the things that's become evident is while Satan, the accuser, has moved off the scene out of chapter 2, his presence is still being acutely felt because each of these guys says things that are straight from Satan. But they are, and this is what surprised me about, they are incredibly well-intentioned. And so these are very well-intentioned people doing the worst possible thing. I think one of the most shocking moments in the life of Christ happens when Peter confronts him. Peter is incredibly well-intentioned, but says the worst possible thing. Uh, let me just read it to you from Matthew 16. Some of you will be familiar with the story. Some won't. That's fine. Matthew 16, this is what happens, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, just to be clear, even in the Gospel of Matthew, this is not some new revelation. Jesus has hinted at, vaguely referenced it, and even told them before, this is just an occasion where he's specifically saying this is what's going to happen. Verse 22, Matthew 16, and Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I think that is a fascinating and scary statement. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It should terrify us that one of the three disciples that are closest to Jesus could be so incredibly wrong in his thinking, and then ultimately, just like Jesus says, what's in our heart comes out of our mouth, and what's in Peter's heart comes right out of his mouth. How do Job's friends and Peter get it so wrong? How wrong? Wrong enough that Job's friends are saying what Satan would say, and they came to comfort, remember? So wrong that Peter is actually saying to Jesus what Satan would say to Jesus in that moment. And so we could look back at Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar and say, well, we don't even know if those guys are believers. But it's an undeniable reality that Peter believed. And yet still, what comes out of him is satanic lie. Good intentions are simply not enough. It's not enough. Um, I'm sure you heard it from others. My mother used to always tell me good intentions pave the road to hell. But I meant to do good. But I was trying to help. It's like when my first summer I worked at camp, we were playing soccer the week before camp started, uh, and, and I was making a play on a ball, and a guy was coming up hard behind me, and, you know, so I was like, I'm going to juke the ball this way, and he'll go right by. And he decided he was going to play the man, not the ball. Um, I'm not, I, I was a smaller guy then, but I was still a big guy. This guy is way bigger than I was, and he didn't even try for the ball, and he just blasted me. And I flipped in the air at least one full 360 and landed on my left shoulder, dislocating it. That was an incredible pain. The only thing that hurt worse than that was when I rolled the other way and hit it and it popped it back in. That was like blinding pain. And this guy runs over to me and he starts grabbing me by the arm. I kid you not. Because he was a first responder and he was going to help me. Like, dude, I don't know what class you took. That does not help. He was well-intentioned but hurting me. Good intentions are not enough. In the late 90s, there was a gentleman, he was very burdened about providing clean drinking water to the billion-plus people on the planet who don't have clean drinking water. And so he hatched this idea, and he, and he drew up a pump that would actually be run by children like a children's merry-go-round. And so as children would play on this pump, it would pump water up from the ground, deep in the ground, clean drinking water, put it into a tank, so then the village could access it at any time that they needed clean drinking water. This is an amazing plan, right? Children are playing and laughing and having fun. Village has clean drinking water. You're killing two birds with one stone. And it was a total abysmal failure. It was incredible. $16 million were raised for this effort. A thousand pieces of this equipment were placed into villages to help them have clean drinking water. But there were three significant problems. First of all, it actually created a kind of child labor. Maybe it was too hot. Maybe it was difficult. Maybe the children weren't feeling well. Maybe the children needed to be in school, but instead it was like, kids, go play on the merry ground. We need water. So turn it into child labor. Traditionally in these villages, older women, as, as a lady got older, you have different seasons, and so I'm, I'm birthing kids, I'm taking care of the home, and as they got older, older women were typically the ones that were charged with going and getting drinking water. And so they were removed from their jobs that they were supposed to be doing. Suddenly children were supposed to be doing it. It was messing up the social structure of the villages and the towns, and it was creating this child labor problem. Additionally, additionally it's an incredibly inefficient way to pump water. And so some villages, they discovered you could run that pump 24 hours a day and it would not provide enough water for the village. And then thirdly, it's a really complex pump, much more complex than the traditional, we're, we're familiar with the whole, you know, Little House on the Prairie, Lord Zinga Water hand pump. Like that's actually a very efficient pumping system. This is an incredibly inefficient pumping system with a lot of mechanical parts and they broke frequently. So after 1,000 of them were installed, $16 million raised, they had another 4,000 or so in storage. They ended up scrapping them, removing them from villages because it simply wasn't working. It actually was making things worse instead of better. Good intentions are not enough. And what was fascinating is one article I was reading about this, they began to investigate, what, then how did we get here? 
what the Western world was super excited about this because in our cultural mindset, that makes perfect sense. We think kids go to school, they have recess, they go out, play on the merry-go-round, water's getting pumped. This is perfect, right? But a misunderstanding of cultural dynamics and social structure, a cluelessness, quite frankly, about generational work ethics and how it was supposed to work in the town. And one article said it this way. Their focus was ultimately not on the people they were trying to help, but on themselves and what they thought would fix things. How do Job's friends and Peter get it so wrong? What did Jesus say to him? Your thoughts are not on the things of God. They're on the things of man right here. Job told his friends, you remember this? He said, do you know why you don't want to hear from me? Because you're afraid of what suffering happens, what suffering happens in someone who doesn't deserve it. You know what he said? How do Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz get it so wrong? How did Peter get it so wrong? How do you and I get it so wrong? Hear me now. Our good intentions are not enough. It is critically, vitally, eminently important that our focus and the words we say and the way we minister, the way we bring comfort, what drives us to bring comfort, can have, listen now, nothing to do with us and everything to do with God and eternity. No real comfort will come out of us, despite our good intentions, if our focus is on ourselves at all. What sufferers really need is the pure love of God to drive out the poison of error. I want you to know this. Whether, even if Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had never spoke, it's very clear that some of this wrestling is happening in Job's own heart. Sufferers are, there's a poison in their own hearts that needs to be washed out with the pure love of Christ. And as I've studied through Job so far to chapter 11, this is what I've come to realize. Eliphaz tells lies. He's the first one. He tells lies of Satan that would rob Job of the Messiah, a mediator, someone to stand for him. Bildad tells lies of Satan that would rob Job of grace. Zophar, he tells lies of Satan that would rob Job of God's love. And so how do we understand this? And we want to get to that hope at the end. Um, we want to understand, well, then what can I say? But to get there, we need to travel a little bit with Zophar here and see his mistakes and his errors. We'll do like we've done for the last several weeks. We'll read the chapter as we go along and explain it. I think that'll help us the most. And so there are three key errors from Zophar. First of all, how Zophar sees Job. And, and he drips poison even more into any concept of what the love of God is. Good intentions, terribly wrong, and he blows it. He's a little bit like the preacher I heard at one, uh, we were one in service, and several hundred teens there, and he calls out these teens on the front row. Uh, they're very distracted to the preacher. They're talking the whole service, and he just had enough. He got to the middle. He's like, you two need to be quiet. Would you please be quiet? Uh, you need to be paying attention here. When I'm talking, you're not talking, and just kind of rebuked them. It was kind of one of those cold water moments. Oh, no, what's going on here? Um, unfortunately, what he did not know, what he did not read, and what he did not understand was one of those young men was from South America, and the other one was interpreting for him. Ouch. You don't really recover from that, do you? Sometimes we can do things, and how do we recover? He misread, and Zophar misreads lots of what's going on. He misreads Job himself and the world. And so let's talk about first how he misreads Job. Verses 1 through 4, Then Zophar the Nemethite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? He's talking about Job. Should your babble silence men and when you mock shall no one shame you for you say my doctrine is pure and i am clean in god's eyes zophar thinks that job is full of himself he how could a man who is clearly experiencing this kind of suffering think claim or moan or cry and zophar is irritated with job's crying how in the world this is zophar's perspective how in the world can someone who is suffering so much, cry so much about it. And we would think, when I go to a funeral, I expect to see tears. What's your problem? And Zophar's perspective, though, is because Job deserves this. So why are you crying about what you deserve? You did the crime, you do the... Let's train you, that's okay, I love you, I love you. You do the crime, you do the time so so what's your problem you knew this was going to happen 
So get over yourself. Zophar is irritated with Job and calls his talk babble and mockery. And Zophar exaggerates something about Job in verse 4. Now, Job never said this, but Zophar says, you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. This is not true. This is not actually at all what Job said. What Job said was he was blameless. He didn't say he was sinless. And those are two very different things. Blamelessness is the state of a believer who is walking in wisdom and in righteousness as much as possible. There's only one sinless person that has ever been and ever will be. His name is Jesus Christ. Job never claimed to be sinless. All he said was, I haven't done anything to deserve this, the death of ten kids, the loss of all goods, and the abandonment of my wife. I've done nothing that deserves that. But Zophar exaggerates what Job has said. Uh, Additionally, Job has never said my doctrine is pure. And in fact, what Job has said in his other speeches so far is I'm very confused and I don't get it. None of this makes sense to me. I thought this about God, but I'm experiencing this, and it's like there's a massive Grand Canyon. Do you know where typically depression, anxiety, sadness settle in? They settle into the gulf that's fixed between what I thought was true about God and what my experience is being. And in that gap between, I can't make sense of it. And Job has even said previously, and we just looked at this last week, I wish there was a court case that we could have. If we had a court case, we'd have God, we'd have me, and then there'd be some kind of mediator or judge that would say who's right or wrong. And Job's terrified by this because he knows he doesn't deserve it, but he's terrified of the concept that somehow you would say God is wrong. He never said my doctrine is pure. He never said that I'm sinless. Zophar is arguing against a straw man Job that doesn't even exist. He's exaggerating it. Why would he exaggerate it? Um, you know, if we think the best of Zophar, communication is hard. There's what I mean to say, what I actually say. Well, you hear me saying what you thought I said. So anytime you've got two people, you've got four people talking. Communication is just wildly difficult. Ask any newlywed couple. Or any couple that's been married 18 years. <laughs> it's, it's radically difficult. Right? It's hard. It's made even more difficult if a person you're dealing with in communication is always looking at you or hearing you with a suspicious ear, doubting what you say, disbelieving what you say, trying to always figure out what you're not saying rather than just believe what you're saying. Uh, the people that, that, I tend just beyond, that I tend to enjoy the most are people just like kind of just direct. I'm terrible at reading hints. I'm terrible. I just need you to tell me right? Um, Zophar, though, is judging Job, and he's misreading Job. And so if we think the best about Zophar, then we think that Zophar is just in a confused way misreading Job. But man, folks, Job has been pretty clear. I think the problem is Zophar's still thinking about himself, just like Job told them they were. You're afraid when you come, you don't want to see my suffering, making it all about you. He looks at Job and says, how am I going to be quiet when you deserve to be shamed? Uh, He goes on from there, and it's not just that. He says that you should actually be grateful. Verse 5, Zophar says this, But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Whew. I'm not sure how you say that to a man who's just lost 10 children in one day. I'm not sure how you say that to a man whose wife has abandoned him. I'm not sure how you say that to a man who's lost every possible respect, friendship, uh, work that he could do, um, gifting loss. I don't know how you say that to a man who's literally in front of you, scraping boils from his body, and when he wakes up in the morning from a nightmare-fueled sleep, he's picking maggots out of his wounds. I don't know how you say to that guy, you're actually getting it better than you deserve. There's a degree of callousness here. So his read on Job is that Job should be ashamed. His read on Job is that Job should actually be thankful. He should be thanking God that he's not dead yet. While Job is saying, kill me, God, Zophar is saying, you should be grateful he hasn't. Bildad looked at, or Eliphaz looked at Job, and he said, clearly, clearly your children's sin was worse than yours because they got killed in a moment. Zophar's read is, you deserved to be killed in a moment. Be grateful for mercy. There is something astoundingly warped and twisted about you if you would walk into 
a leper colony, a cancer infusion center, St. Jude's Hospital helping children with cancers, Johns Hopkins, and stand there and open your Bible and say, just want to begin with this premise, you all have it a lot better than you deserve. That's exactly how Jesus dealt with people, isn't it? It's unbelievable, the callousness of this man. And then he also thinks Job should be teachable. Just skip down to verse 12. He, he's going to give an illustration. We'll walk through those here in more in a minute. Well, actually, just, let's just read the flow. So verse 7, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And this is where he talks about how, Job, you can't know what's going on in God's mind, and he's going to tell you why in just a moment. It's higher than the heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. That's a weird phrase. Let me explain to you what it means. He's saying this, a stupid man gets smart as quick as a wild donkey produces a tame, useful colt. Let me put it in our language. You know, I don't know. When I was a kid, I used to go to my grandma's house. She had cable, and I, they had one show that always showed sitcoms. Mel's Diner was one. And I remember the waitress on there, but she had a phrase. This is the phrase right here. This is it. Quicker will you, Job, get smart than when pigs fly. That's what this means. you got a problem, Job, and here's your problem. You're stupid. Now, he goes on to appeal to Job to repent. And so it's a little bit of a setup. It's a little bit like saying, now listen, listen, you got to where you're at because you're an idiot, but I hope you're not too stupid to stay there. It's (laughs) Zophar's apologetics. This is his winsome way. I use sarcasm to try to appeal to Job. It's harsh, it's unkind, it's unloving. Zophar thinks that Job needs to take his medicine, and he wants Job to think, well, I don't want to be that stupid, so I better listen. What should we learn from Zophar here? Well, it isn't out of love that Zophar speaks. Job's already identified that his friends are driven by themselves and by their own fear of his suffering. We should learn this. Love speaks truth, but it does so through the filter of 1 Corinthians 13. It's always with patience, kindness, and never rude. Do you catch Zophar's patience here when he says, who can be quiet with your babbling? That's not patient at all, is it? You're getting less than you deserve. Is that kind? You know what, Job? You're so dumb, when pigs fly, will you come out of this? Yeah, that that doesn't sound rude at all. It's like when I used to go down to USC and we did a Bible study down there. And a couple of different times I went down there and there was a guy out street preaching. I think you can street preach well. I think you can do it really, really bad. So I, this is not an indictment on guys who street preach. Those guys were doing it really, really bad. And I remember this guy standing in near the horseshoe. It's like the main center area of USC's campus. And he's, he's screaming at students. Just unbelievable things. Um, wicked things. And then, and then we set up, and I'm trying to invite kids to a Bible study, and I'm having to give an account for this maniac. Because we're all the same, right? When you enter into the life of a sufferer, you should enter and you should speak, but make sure it's coming through 1 Corinthians 13. Make sure your speech is clothed with patience and kindness and long-suffering and thinking the best of them. Zophar certainly does it. But Zophar's error is not just that he sees Job wrong. It's how he sees himself. I want to come back to verses 5 and 11 to walk through that. This is what he says. Oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. And now here's what's interesting. He's about to give some of the most beautiful poetry in the Bible about the wisdom of God. Here's my problem with that. 
okay? It's coming out of just abysmal wickedness. And so it's really, really hard. And, I, and you begin wondering, as I was meditating on the text this week, it's like, do we have any other examples of something or someone that on the surface is so beautiful and so lovely and so awe-inspiring, but is so wicked? Yeah, I think his name is Satan, who is the morning star, the son of the morning, who, who rules this earth right now, and the prince of the power of the air, who is noted for his beauty and his ability. This would be like, a, to celebrate the beauty of this, this is how it, it would feel like celebrating the incredible efficiency of the Nazi final solution. With maps that gave the SS traveling death squads exact numbers of how many Jews to kill. The fact that we know from their own records they weren't fully able to destroy, that yes, while they killed 6 million Jews, they also killed up to a half million gypsies, 250,000 disabled people, and over a half million prisoners. And us being like, well, that was an efficient system. And so what Zophar says here at the start, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. He's about to do two things. He's about to, first of all, show how far God's wisdom is, while at the same time, get this now, claim, I now speak for him. And so, oh, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Now, listen to this. Know then, God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. He just said, you can't, I wish that God would tell you this, but he's not. So I'm going to tell you what he would say if he were here. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? This is not humility saying, can we find it out? The language is very specific here. It's like, Job, can you know it? It's higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons, and now he goes, he's playing off of Job saying, I wish there was a court case. Really, Job? You wish there was court? This is what it would look like. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? I wonder who Zophar thinks is iniquity. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. For the one who thinks that Job is proud, Zophar, his read on him is, himself is just shockingly unaware. Self-awareness is hard to come by. Oh, uh, <laughs> I've said it before, I like how Paul Tripp puts it, we're all blind to our own blindness. We're told in Hebrews 3 to enter one another's life, lest we become hardened through the lying of our own heart's sin, through the deceptiveness of our sin. We're told in Ephesians to speak the truth to one another, we might be built up together. Having a good read on our own hearts is incredibly difficult. It's, we all have a propensity to have a lack of self-awareness. Zophar has an astounding lack of self-awareness. The reality is what he's actually accusing Job of is who he is. You're proud? No, Zophar's proud. Zophar somehow sees himself as outside of the judgment of God. And so he should, according to his theology. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. But in his mindset, if Job's suffering, it's because he deserves it. That's why he makes the case. He summons the court who can turn it back. He knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider, Job, you're getting what you deserve? And even if, and so let's just pause because we know the truth that Job is blameless here and Job doesn't deserve this. But can I just touch then on sometimes the way that Christians, and this is so sad to say, but the way Christians deal with sufferers. They're in the midst of turmoil. They're in the midst of deep grief. They're in the midst of, of pain and of suffering. And they still pass judgment. If you had a little bit more faith, then you wouldn't suffer this way. If you had enough spiritual endurance you wouldn't seem so fatigued. If you were more righteous. And so what's interesting is even if we would not be so quick to assign suffering like Zophar does, then you must have done something wrong. We still judge people that are in the midst of suffering. This is part of what produces people who fake it all the time. Uh, they, you, know, you have two ditches. You have people that can never talk about the blessing of God, and you have people that talk so much about the blessing of God that the reality is they're masking the dark reality that they're living in. And we can't just be honest. And part of the reason we resist that kind of honesty, openness, and transparency is because Christians do such a wonderful job of shooting their own wounded. What should we learn from Zophar here? I think there's... I think there's <laughs> first of all... Uh, 
pump the brakes the next time you say, well, God would tell them this. I'm not saying we don't have clarity from Scripture about lots of things God says. But man, if there ain't crystal clarity when you're particularly dealing with sufferer, I'm just calling you, pump the brakes. And be careful what comes out of you. And actually, that's actually what the Bible tells us. So Matthew 7, you are going to deal with someone, maybe they're suffering because of sin in their life. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's so much imagery there. I'm just going to settle in on just this one point. The first thing you do before you talk to somebody else is think about what's going on in your own heart. Before you open this, do some heart inspection for this. That's what he's saying. But it's not just there. What about in Galatians? So it's not a personal offense, and it's not a sin that you particularly see, but maybe they're overwhelmed in their sin. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are in the caught there is like they're caught in a snare. And so this isn't the speck in their eye. This is maybe even a habitual sin, something they're caught up in, something it seems like they can't get free from. Um, This would go a lot more along with Hebrews 3. Maybe they're even being hardened through the deceptiveness of their sin. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you are spiritual. Spiritual there does not mean Ph.D., M.D.V., M.A. A, B, A in the Bible. This is, you want to know what spiritual means? Go back and read Galatians 5. It means you have the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to break it down for you here. You who are spiritual are people who know and love and walk with Jesus. It ain't no special skill set. And it isn't the job of the pastor. It's my job and Darren's job simply because we are also believers. But in this, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness But what does he say you're supposed to do as you do that? Keep watching yourself lest you to be tempted. If you walk into a situation with a sufferer and you ever think this, I would never respond this way. You have not spent enough time on your knees. There's no sin but that which is common to man. And so when we're dealing with people suffering, we need to approach them even with this mindset. It specifically talks to pastors. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I love what a mentor of mine told me a number of years ago. He said, a message prepared in the mind reaches the mind. A message prepared in the heart reaches the heart. A message prepared in the life reaches the life. What we are called to do, yes, as ministers of the gospel, but I think you can apply this. So We'll keep it right there, pastor, so we'll just you know, preach on Darren and me for a minute, right? But... But I think you can easily make this application to anyone in a spiritual leadership position or discipleship venue. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. And that isn't because somebody else is going to wreck you. As another mentor of mine said, I'm just quote people, right? Just, I just, just so you know, there ain't no, none of this wisdom is with Steve, right? So I just stand on the shoulders of others. He said it this way, if your output is greater than your intake, then your upkeep will be your downfall. In other words, make your walk primary before you feel the need. Don't you wish Zophar would have just checked himself? Just prayed a little bit more. He doesn't. What should we learn from Zophar? Before we go to do ministry of exhortation, edification, or instruction, presume that we need to take consistent, humble, and careful looks at ourselves, particularly when we're dealing with the sins or weaknesses of others. There is a proud man in this situation. It's not Job, it's Zophar. Lastly here, how Zophar sees the world. Zophar thinks he's got it all figured out. And his theology is this, do good, do bad, get bad, do good, get good. So with Job, your suffering is extreme, so your sin must be extreme. Zophar comes to this moment preloaded with like everyone else. All the friends and Job all believe in this very strong system of retribution. Do bad, get bad, do good, get good. Do extreme good, get, extre- do, get extreme blessing. Do extreme bad, get extreme suffering. So this is the filter, and it's his only filter. It's his only flow chart for Job, and he's just hammering this. He has this box world that doesn't take in the nuance of the way life or suffering happens. Now, what's fascinating here is Zophar then applies it in a very specific way, and he makes it all about stuff. We can see it in a couple ways. Let's come back to the text. 
We can start to see it in his appeal. So I'm going to pick up in verse 13. This is his appeal. We'll read down to the end of the chapter now. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. I just want to pause there. That, is, that language is important because throughout the Bible, repentance is turning from and turning to. Repentance is I confess that I'm sinning, and I'm turning from my sin, and I'm turning to God. I'm going a different direction. I, I emotionally, mentally, and volitionally, I'm going the other way. So when God talks to sinners, and he says, confess and repent of your sins, we're all sinners, we're all on our way to eternal hell. He says, confess this reality, repent of your sin, and follow Jesus, and you're saved. That's not the language Zophar uses here. Zophar uses the kind of language like... Um, <laughs> It's like one time at camp we had a hot sauce eating contest. Brilliant idea. Um, it was so entertaining. Um, and we had this kid, and I remember he's putting hot sauce, and we eat on a Tostito chip kind of thing, and he puts it in, and he's like, ah, ah, and it's like burning him, right? But he so wanted to win. Next one, ah, ah, and he's like, and he's like, oh, it hurts so bad. He's like nauseous, ah, and you're just like, then stop eating it. Like, just stop it. That's actually the language Zophar is using. You're continuing to experience bad because you keep doing bad. Just stop doing it and you'll start. It's not a call to confess and repent of your sin. It's a call simply stop doing bad so you can start getting good. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. Now this is fascinating though because Zophar is hinting very strongly at something. And here's what it is. He's hinting that all of Job's success materially was gained unethically. He makes it about stuff. He doesn't mention his children here, doesn't mention his health, doesn't mention his wife. It's his stuff. You know what, Job? We always wondered how you were so rich. Now we know. You had some back room, smoke-filled, shady dealings. Surely then, if he'd stop this, surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. Look how lightly he deals with the sorrow of Job. This will be like water under the bridge for you. I'm going to tell you something because we know the end of the book. I'm going to tell you something here, though. There is not a good parent on the planet that's going to lose 10 kids and it ever just feel like water under the bridge. What an astounding misread on suffering. Waters that have passed away. Your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. You will feel secure because there is hope. Now, what is the hope? Because you will look around and take your rest in security. He's starting to use more stuff language, money language, possession language. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. First of all, in verse 14, the language indicates that Zophar thinks Job's sin. What is this extreme suffering? The extreme suffering is because the extreme sin was some kind of financial mishandling. And so the restoration would be your stuff. Zophar is revealing what he loves and what he thinks Job loves, the things of this world. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Your thinking is on the things of this world. The conclusion of the appeal is a restoration of stuff, things. That's what will bring you hope, Job. That's what will bring you safety. That's what will bring you rest. That's what will bring you respect once again. For so far, there is no greater expression of the approval of God than the presence of material wealth and security. Eliphaz speaks the words of Satan when he tells Job there's no mediator for him. Bildad speaks the words of Satan when he tells Job there is no unjust, undeserved, and therefore there is no redemptive suffering. There is no grace. Zophar speaks the words of Satan when he tells Job to love God because then God will give you your stuff back. Do you know who said that? Satan. Job only loves you because he has stuff. Zophar says, love God and get stuff. Your problem is you got your stuff without loving God and now he's revealed it. So love God and he'll give you your stuff back. That's actually what this whole trial is about. Does God really love Job or is he a manipulative, insecure controller? And does Job really love God or is he a gold-digging blessing seeker? Zophar says, Job, be a gold-digging blessing seeker. Look how wonderful it is. What can we learn from Zophar here? Enter into anyone's suffering with an eye on eternity and not here. 
Here is not the test. Right now is not the test or the revealer. Listen to me now, friends. This moment, your suffering, your friend's suffering, your grieving, your trials, your hardship, that is not the revealer of God's acceptance, love, and approval of you. Don't think because someone's suffering, well, they must have done something wrong. Because the flip side of that is surely true. If you're not suffering like them, then you must have done something right. But I'm going to tell you, there's four dudes sitting around this ash heap, and only one of them was blameless, and it's none of these three dudes. This is prosperity gospel. Sufferers need the pure love of God, though, to drive out the poison of error. Zophar has such a warped view of God himself and therefore Job. His ministry, then, is a cursing and not a blessing. It's terrifying because good intentions are just not enough. And where there's error, it's possible to speak like Peter to Jesus, like Zophar to Job. It's possible, even in our good intentions, to utter words of Satan and not of Christ. Zophar has just dripped more poison into the pure love of God by not understanding Job or his situation. There's no better help we can give to one suffering puzzling pain than to help wash their hearts and minds in the love of God. So this is my call to you. Become an expert in the love of God. Now, one of my favorite hymns is the love of God. The ocean is too small to have enough ink to write of his love. You could not, if the whole sky were the scroll, it would, you, you'd fill it and still run out of space to write about the love of God. And so how in the world do I do that this morning? And so I'm just going to give you one key aspect of God's love. I'm going to give you two tools, one key aspect. And here it is, that God in his love understands the sufferer. Suffering is so lonely. It's so lonely. It was a different morning when I dropped my kids off at school on Friday. My heart mourns for our nation. Whether it's a Buffalo supermarket or little defenseless children. My heart aches for police officers who, at least one, made just an incredibly horrifically bad decision. And others that I have to believe would rather have died in the doorway than lived safe in the hallway. I have to believe that. A nation that has no answers. We all know that ultimately the answer is Christ, right? How do we speak to suffering people? This year our church has lost two of its greatest prayer warriors. We'll celebrate Christ through Nature's life on Saturday. It just has felt like, I mean, just sorrow. Like, how do we talk about the love of God? And there's a loneliness to it. There's just an acute loneliness. And everybody experience it individually so how do i what do i say and and so i think when you are suffering and grieving deeply in the loneliness it can feel like no one gets you like no one gets it a pastoral friend of mine how dear 10 years ago when i wanted to quit had multiple phone calls with him, encouraging me to stay the course, giving me hope. He took his own life a few months ago. Another dear friend of mine wanted to quit, encouraged me, checked himself into a mental health center. And what all, a lot of these have in common is when you're suffering, man, you just feel like nobody gets you. Nobody understands. And so I want to equip you this morning specifically, God's love, he understands the sufferer. Zophar so misreads Job, but God doesn't. And so let me give you two ways. First of all, God understands anxiety. Anxiety. Anxiety is a restless fear. 
That's what it is, right? And so we know, we know that the Bible tells us, I've said this verse many, many times, it's true, perfect love casts out all fear. And so, yeah, we understand on a spiritual level when there's anxiety, there's anxiousness, there's some lacks of love and there's some misunderstanding. But I just want you to know, when we come into the life of an anxious person, a fearful person, we should not come bringing condemnation. We do bring truth, but we don't bring condemnation. And so let me just tell you how Jesus deals with anxious people. He says, I get it. I get it. Look how he responds in Matthew 6. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus told Peter? Your mind is here and not there. What is Zophar's cure? More here, not there. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And I just want to point out this. There's so much here you could go back and you could say, oh, well, they need this truth, they need this truth, they need this truth. I agree with you. Can I just give you the one truth? The one truth I think you should settle on in someone's heart who's deeply grieving, who's suffering even puzzling pain. Here it is. Why did Jesus say this? Because he knows and understands how frail you are. And he knew you'd be anxious. I grew up always believing I just needed to pull up my big boy britches, wipe my tears, and press on. The way to get through it was power through. Strength could overcome anything. You know what I've discovered? When you think that your truck is built so strong that it can power through anything, God has a unique way of having you run into a foot-thick cinder block wall to prove to you, no, you can't. And then that moment, you're like, oh, I'm not sure you love me. And you start getting afraid, and your heart gets unsettled, and then suddenly you're reminded that Jesus said, look, you can't fix then. You can't fix next month. You can't fix next year. You can't do that. I'm, I'm there. I'm there already. I stand outside of time and eternity, but I just want you to know I'm with you. I understand you. This is the truth. Go to the suffering and say, oh brother, oh sister, I so want to mourn with you. I so want to weep with you. I have never experienced your specific pain. I don't judge you. I love you. I want to understand you. I want to hear from you. I want to hear you speak just so I can pray with you. You will not scare me. God is not afraid of their anxiousness. Why are we? If you're threatened... By the anxious sufferer, that's a you problem, not a them problem. He understands anxiety, but God also understands insufficiency. Oh man, when you're suffering, what are you going to do? You know what you start thinking? I don't even know how I can get out of bed today. I don't know how I can make lunch. I don't know how I can feed myself. I don't know how I can take care of my kids. I don't know how I can do this, that, and the other. I don't know how I can go to work. I don't know how I can focus in school. I don't know how I can write this paper. I don't know how I can pass this test. I don't know how I can do this date. I don't know how I can go to church. I don't know how, I, I can't, God, I can't do it. How can I do it? You don't understand, God, do you not understand? I'm at the limit. Have you ever been there? You ever been suffering and you're like, God, like, uh, um, there's the euphemism of the straw that breaks the camel's back. Like, like God, my back's broke. <laughs> there, it's not another straw, back's broke. And you keep demanding, do you not understand how weak I am? That's what Job said earlier. He said, I'm like made out of clay and you're just crushing me. What's the deal? Do you not understand? Can I tell you this? God understands insufficiency. And you know what he says? He says, if you even give a cup of cold water, I'm going to rejoice and celebrate and reward it. Now, that's fascinating. I was meditating on this this week because my neighbor was getting his uh, roof done. So he's got a crew out there, they're roofing. And at the same time, I was meditating and thinking about this passage. And I thought, why would you only give a cup of cold water? I mean, it's South Carolina. It gets a little warm on the roof. Don't know if you've ever done a roof. I did two roofs, quickly decided that was not Jesus' calling for me. Like, praise God for those fellows. They're tanned. They're live. They're not afraid of heights. Steve wasn't made that way. They're out there, it's roasting. If guys were out make, doing my roof and it's one of these um, unbelievably hot, you, like you, if they wanted to, they could fry an egg up on the roof. And, and, and why would I only ever come out, would I ever come out with a Dixie cup? I don't know if you have Dixie cups in your bathroom. My grandma always had Dixie cups in her bathroom, a little tiny paper cup. Would I ever come out and say, um, excuse me, would you like a cup of cold water? 
Like, what is the wrong with it? Why would you ever only offer a cup of cold water? What if I had a five-gallon uh, Deer Park thing of water? And, I, and I'm walking in, I'm like, fellas, I'll be right back. Here's a Dixie cup of water for you, and here's one for you, here's one for you. And they're all thinking, I thought I saw five gallons. I'm like, yeah, but that's for me. Right? Or what about the Good Samaritan? He walks by, here's the guy, he's wounded, he's laying on the road. What if he walked by and he's like, oh, yeah. He's hurt. Let me, oh, time's ticking. Got to meet. Uh, uh, here, oh, here's a little oil. Here's a rag. That's really all I can do for you. I hope, you're here. I hope, I hope you do okay. Is that what happens? Look, like, this is what I know. He is not saying when you give a cup of cold water or a widow gives her mites, her two little pennies. What he's not saying, the picture is not of someone with all kinds of resources choosing to give a little of the resources and him celebrating that. He's not rejoicing over that. And the rest of Scripture is really clear. What we have is somebody, all they've got is the cup of cold water. All they've got is the pennies. They're giving all they've got. Now, if we think stewardship, we know this. You've got limited money, you've got limited time, you've got limited energy, you got limited spiritual resources, and I'm going to tell you what suffering robs you of. Even if you don't lose your money, even if you don't lose all your kids, even if your spouse doesn't abandon you, even if you don't lose your physical health, when you are in deep grief, you've got nothing to give. And I want you to know this. When that sufferer gets up, makes themselves a cup of tea or coffee, turns on some Bible reading. You should put your arm around them and say, oh, I just want you to know. That was enough of a cup of cold water today. Because you've done all you can. And God understands your insufficiency. He doesn't condemn it. When you and I enter into the depth of of someone suffering. We need to know what they need is the pure love of God to wash the poison out of them. And one that you can take is he understands. In his love, he gets it. We tell husbands, dwell with your wife in an understanding way. You need to know them. God knows us. He shows that he loves us that way. He knows the hair on our head, right? We seek to know God because we love him. There's none I want on earth beside you. God's understanding love is for the sufferer. And specifically, I'd encourage you to apply it in their anxiety, and in their insufficiency. 